perhaps being elevated to a way high level. But I think underneath it, you would see two driving forces. A love of self and an elevated pride and absence of humility. In fact, I would say that the way to avoid disunity, fraction, division in a church is to never, ever, in your attitudes or in your actions, get past what we're about to do tonight. It's because we forget what Christ has done for us and who we are in him that pride leads to selfishness, leads to division, leads to a fracturing in the body of Christ. And it's really interesting, and in fact, in many ways, a very kind reminder from God tonight that not only do we get the reminder that we heard this morning of this eternal, glorious Jesus, and then tonight we remember our broken, sinful need for him, that at this point in the life of our church, when there is a time of transition and flux, that we need unity more than ever. And the Lord Jesus, I believe, this morning and tonight is serving us the two ways, if we could say that, that our unity will be preserved. It will be preserved by keeping Jesus Christ and him alone central in everything we do. Like Pastor Sam reminded us this morning, that Jesus. And remembering what we're about to do tonight, that we are broken, sinful people who are in desperate, desperate need for a Savior. If we never get away from that, brothers and sisters, we'll be fine. We will thrive. We will do well. But if we forget who Jesus is and what he's done, we're doomed. We're doomed. It's just a matter of time. So we need to be aware of the challenges to unity and the ways Satan will tempt us toward disunity even as we move forward. And the key to preserving unity, as I've already said, is growing in humility. And the only way to really grow in true humility is to be freshly affected in an ongoing way by who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So it's tonight that we're going to turn there. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 and look at a very familiar text. Never did thunder sound so good, huh? <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. And I want us to spend just a few minutes here, 15, 20 minutes, thinking about verses 1 through 11. Very familiar, familiar passage. And I'm not going to read it all up front. I'm going to read it as we work through it. But I want to talk tonight briefly about the problem that the Philippian church was facing. Secondly, the reason that they were facing that problem. And then finally, the solution or power for overcoming that problem. We see the problem in verse 2. Would you look there with me? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2 where Paul says, Complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. This is a church that brings Paul a lot of joy. This is a church that when Paul thinks of them, makes him very happy. In, in chapter 1, he goes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, of your partnership in the gospel. This was a church that had a heart like Paul's heart. This was a church that loved the gospel, loved the advancement of the gospel, was willing to suffer for the gospel like Paul and with Paul for the advancement of the gospel. This was a church that had united itself with, the, with Paul and his mission, which was, of course, the mission of Christ. And Paul loves this church. But this church is not a perfect church. It's not a perfect church. In fact, there are some ways in which this church grieves Paul. That's why he says in verse 2, complete my joy. Go further than you've currently gone. And what is the way that he describes for them to complete his joy? It's by, first of all, being of the same mind, secondly, having the same love, and thirdly, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, being completely united. He wants this church to have the same thinking. He wants them to be of the same mind. That is, he wants their heads and their thinking to be aligned with each other. He wants them to think in light of the Word of God, sound doctrine. He wants them to believe the same things. He wants them to be of the same mind. He also wants them to have not only the same mind, the same way of thinking, the same head, but he wants them to have the same heart. He wants them to have the same, in his words, having the same love. He doesn't want them just to think the same way. He wants them to feel the same way. He wants their heart to beat for the same things. And then finally, he wants them to be in full accord and of one mind. That is, he wants them doing the same things. He wants their hands Unified. He wants their head unified. He wants their heart unified. He wants their hands unified. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 27, just a few verses up, maybe on the same page in your Bible as well, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I think that's it. He says, I want you to have one mind, one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is what Paul wants for all the churches, not just the church in Philippi, but especially the church in Philippi. And that's what God wants for Heritage Baptist Church. He wants us thinking, feeling, and doing in unity. And I would say, if we were to step back and be really honest with ourselves, that some of those areas we're stronger in than in others. I would say in our thinking, in our theological thinking, in our doctrinal thinking, in our beliefs, we're very much of one mind. And in some ways, in a lot of ways, in, in, in fact, we have many of the same loves 
He doesn't say same interests. He says the thing that governs your heart, your affections, your love is the same. Love for Jesus. Love for the church. Love for the cause of Christ. Love for the advancement of the gospel. And then, he says, being in full accord and of one bind, or according to verse one, chapter, chapter 1, verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In many ways, that's where we need to grow. So I just want to throw this out on behalf of your pastors. Would you pray for us, please? As we move forward and think about how to bring us together in greater unity and greater focus and all of that, pray that we would lead in such a way that we have unity of head, heart, and hands. Pray that that would be accomplished. That's what we want. And that's what we want you to know that that's what we want. And we're going to be working together, thinking together, praying together about how we can do that most effectively with God's blessing. So, that's the problem in the church at Philippi. Paul wants them united, but they're not completely of the same mind, same heart, and same hands or same purpose. So, secondly, what's the reason? What's the underlying reason that this church is not as united as it needs to be? Well, he gives the answer in verses 3 and 4, where he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The fundamental reason that this church is not completely unified in their head, heart, and hands is selfishness. And pride. Selfish agendas. A me first, doing it my way, looking to my own interests, my own preferences, my own desires, my own goals, my own ambitions, that will kill church unity. It will at least make it sickly. And it won't be as full-orbed and robust as God would want it to be. Because you can have doctrinal unity. You can have, in some sense, a same love. But where you have competing interests, where you have a culture in which people are fundamentally committed to their own agendas first and do not in humility count others as more important than themselves or seek to serve others with a degree of interest that they themselves serve themselves, to that degree you cannot foster any sort of meaningful unity in a fully orbed, holistic, biblical way. So Paul's saying, do nothing from it. Do nothing from the posture of selfishness, from rivalry or deceit. Uh, rivalry is sometimes translated, I think it translated in the, in the, in the, new, uh, the new International Version, as selfish ambition. And that's a good translation. It's putting our own wants and needs ahead of others. And you get a whole church of people doing that, we got some serious issues. <laughs> some serious, serious issues. And then he says, don't do anything, not only from rivalry, but from conceit. 
that is an unrealistic assessment of yourself and your own importance. And that's where it starts, doesn't it? It starts with us having an elevated view of our preference, of our ideas, which leads us to put those ideas, those wants, those needs ahead of others. And Paul says those two things are pride. They're the opposite of humility. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul moves in and says, okay, complete my joy by being of the same head, heart, and hands. But the only way this is going to happen is if you lay aside the number one priority in your life, which is all too often in my life as well, which is ourselves and our own wants and our own preferences. Now, as I was thinking about this week, I thought, okay, Paul's addressing the church, right? He's stepping out and saying, okay, I want you to complete my joy, come into full unity by not only considering your own interests, but also considering the interests of others. And he's speaking that to the whole church. Now, think about this. If he's saying that to the whole church, then the whole church is responsible for obeying that command, which means that I am to consider all of you as more important than myself, or at least consider your interests as of as of, as, as of as much importance as my own. And you're to do the same. So stalemate, right? <laughs> stalemate. I mean, if I'm considering your interests and you're considering my interests, and then we're stuck. Well, that would be a wonderful stalemate to have. <laughs> it would be great. But the question is, is how do we get the power and from where do we get the power to have that kind of humility, that kind of absence of selfish ambition, that kind of attitude that counts others as more significant than ourselves, that kind of attitude that looks not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others. How do we get that? And the answer is in the text. So I want to spend the last few minutes here talking about the power, and it's all related to what we're getting ready to do with the Lord's Supper tonight. He gives two sort of encouragements, two solutions, two sources of power for being able to come to, come to unity and to preserve humility that would help keep that unity strong. And it's First of all, remembering what Jesus has done for you. And second of all, remembering what you've received from him. Okay? Remembering what Jesus has done for you. And then secondly, remembering what we have received from Jesus. So let's take those one at a time. First of all, remembering what Jesus did for us. And the answers are in, or the text is verses 5 through 11, which I'm going to do a poor, poor, poor job of explaining because there's so much here and I'm just going to have to do a flyover. But I think you'll even appreciate that, I hope. So, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is already a mind that we have by virtue of being in Christ. 
who, though, verse 6, he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. We need that to preserve humility and unity in our church. And to the degree that we forget that, we're in trouble. But how gracious of God tonight to come to us and remind us in the Lord's Supper of this truth. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. Jesus leaving his privileges. Jesus setting aside his personal interests. And Jesus giving himself to humanity first by becoming a human, taking on the form of a servant, Paul says. And then humbling himself further to the point of death. And not just dying any old death, but dying the death of the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, if Jesus would have sought his own interests above the interests of others, you would not be here tonight. You would not be a Christian. If Jesus would have looked at this world and said, no thanks, no thanks, do you realize what I have to give up to serve those people? I have to give up the form of God, at least being in the form of God, in the way he was, in terms of his majesty, in the, in, the, in, the, in the form of before Abraham was, I am. That sort of majestic, transcendent, awesome, glorious position. That counting of equality with God. He said, I'm willing to let it go. And I'm willing to take on the form of a servant. I'm willing to be born in the likeness of men. I'm willing to be found in human form. I'm willing to humble myself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For them. See, Jesus did that for us. And if we grasp that, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that will make it quite easy to look at others and to serve them. And to the degree, brothers and sisters, that we find it difficult to give up our preferences, to serve others, to look to their interests, to that degree you have lost, you have lost a functional heart love for the gospel. There is a disconnect in your life if you have a me-first, preference-oriented, my-way-or-the-highway kind of attitude, you have lost sight of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. So he's bringing them back. He's bringing them back, and he's saying, okay, remember who Jesus is, what he gave up for you so that you could be saved, brought into the family of God. And brothers and sisters, if that warms us, if that moves us, if that changes us, if that refreshes us, we will be a source of blessing and not a rock in the shoe to our brothers and sisters. We will be a source of blessing and life and we'll be willing to put aside our own preferences 
and count others as more significant than ourselves because that's what Jesus did for us. He counted us more significant than him. He didn't look to his own interests. He also looked to the interests of others. He didn't just look around heaven and say, this is really nice. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to go into a birth canal. I don't want to be born in a manger. I certainly don't want to grow up in hillbilly Nazareth. And then as a result of that, be, a, be misunderstood and malign my whole life for the confusion of my birth and whether or not Joseph's my dad. And then have to enter in to the awkward teenage years where I was in the synagogue all the time and people thought I was weird because I was with the older, older people. And then growing up, graduating out of my dad's carpentry shop and setting out in ministry and calling this ragtag bunch of people to follow me, fishermen and the like, tax collectors, and hanging out with riffraff and going to house party after house party and having the religious elite look at me with scorn. And then as a result of that, getting killed, getting a mistrial. I mean, he gave all of that. And he, and he left heaven for us and was willing to become obedient to that point. Left everything, lost everything so that he could have a unified, humble church. So, we remember what Jesus did for us. We remember his incarnation. We remember the atonement. We remember also that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, verse 9, the name that is above every name. And we follow in his path when he told us those who humble themselves will be exalted because he humbled himself and was exalted. Now, we not only need to remember what Jesus did for us, but we also need to remember what we've received from Jesus. And this is where I'm going to wrap up, and that's in verse 1. And Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind. So he reminds them of all that they have received from this Jesus. Not only that Jesus did this for them, but they've also received amazing benefits from being in union with Christ. What's the first benefit? Encouragement. Brothers and sisters, think with me of the encouragement that you receive from being in union with Christ. Every single day, if you will avail yourself of the promises of God, you have their yes and amen in Christ. They belong to you. They are given to you for your encouragement. You have every spiritual blessing you could possibly want given to you in Christ. And so every promise that we read is yes and amen in Christ. And so through that, we have ample and adequate encouragement. Think about that. Think if you didn't have encouragement from Christ. And just a side note, connect to the Lord's Supper tonight. That's one of the things that Jesus wants you to take away from the table tonight is encouragement. He wants you to be encouraged that you're in Christ. Also, he wants you to be comforted from love. He wants you to be, Paul says, 
Do you have any comfort from love? Both the love of Jesus for you and also the love of Jesus that is given to you as a result of Jesus' love for others that extends to you in the church? Do you get any comfort from love? Say yes, yes. Yes, we get comfort from love. As Paul says, think about that. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship or participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, tenderness, compassion. These are all things, brothers and sisters, that we've received in Christ. We receive encouragement. We receive comfort. We receive fellowship. We receive affection. We receive sympathy. And to the degree that we remember that, live in the good of that, receive that from brothers and sisters, to that degree, we will begin making more and more progress toward being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So how appropriate that we take the Lord's Supper tonight. The Lord's Supper is given us to strengthen all of this that we've talked about. That's what's great about it. You know, we don't often talk about the purposes of the Lord's Supper. We talk about, you know, it's, it's meant to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Well, we got that right here in the text. But it's also to remind us of the benefits that we have in him. The encouragement, the comfort, the fellowship, the affection, the sympathy, sympathy the compassion, all of that. But it's also to humble us. The Lord's Supper is one big humble pill. That's what it is. It's meant to slay our pride and lay us low. In a good way. It's meant to remind us of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And so to the degree that we take it, welcome it, want it, to that degree we are partaking in a worthy way. And also... The Lord's Supper reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. It is called communion after all. And so it reminds us that we are to be of the same mind. We are to deal with problems that we have with each other. We are to reconcile. We are to be a community which exercises forgiveness readily and eagerly just as God in Christ has treated us. So we're to have the same love. We're to be in full accord. We're to be of one mind. And it's at the table, gathering around the table, that we're reminded of that. And then it's as we get up from the table, we leave with the aroma of humility filling our souls, with pride being sufficiently attacked, where we can go out and love each other, serve the world. So may the Lord help us to do that. May we benefit tonight as we take the Lord's Supper together, remembering what Christ is, what he's done for us, remembering what we've received in him and who we are to be in light of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being in Christ. It is a massive, massive reality to be in Christ, to be in union with this Jesus that we've thought about this morning and tonight. And would you... Grant us tonight fresh encouragement, fresh comfort. Would you extend tenderness and compassion and affection and sympathy toward us? Would you grant us to truly fellowship in the spirit? 
May we receive comfort from your love for us and tangibly expressed in love for each other. And would you also humble us? May we have this mind in us, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And may we leave with a fresh resolve to practice other-orientedness, to kill in an ongoing way tendencies towards selfishness and self-centeredness in our lives, which we all battle. And would you bring us more and more to be a church that is one in head, heart, and hands for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation, um, just on your way to the fellowship hall, those of you who have four- and five-year-old children, please take them to the new nursery area. Let's uh, proceed with joy and anticipation to the fellowship hall.